Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Thank you for returning. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmet Bindra. And we are speaking again today with Laurie A. Goldstein, the founder of the law office of Laurie A. Goldstein, LLC. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Laurie's initial episode to get a slightly more in-depth bio. But by point of reference, Laurie was selected to be a Super Lawyers 2021 Top 50 Women member. And she's been recognized as a super lawyer every year since 2016. Laurie, the super lawyer, welcome back. Thanks, Merrick. Max, thanks, Ahmet. It's nice to be back. All right. So last time we came on, we talked a little bit about COVID. We talked about your unique perspective working, you know, on the employer and the employee side. Uh, We wanted to just more generally talk about your career, your journey, and what brought you to this point today. Um, How did you end up in employment law? Well, it's a a little bit of a winding story. I love to write. I was on my high school newspaper and college newspaper and my father was a journalist, and so that's what I thought I wanted to be, and I followed in his footsteps and went to college, started journalism school junior year, and at the same time, I started taking some pre-law classes, which I just loved, much better than journalism, so I decided to go to law school. I have always been passionate about civil rights, so I took a lot of law school classes on civil rights, women's rights, a lot of employment law discrimination. And when I went to my first firm in 1984, I said, I want to do employment law. And they started me on commercial and employment litigation. So, and I've never looked back. So you mentioned you started off at a bigger, at a couple of bigger firms before you set up your own shop. How did you find working in large in big law? Um, what was your experience? It, I, I liked the experience. I It wasn't big law when I started the, at the first firm. It was Hollibankoff, and I think I was the 32nd lawyer, maybe the sixth one in the litigation department. It was considered medium at the time. And I got wonderful experience because I was working with excellent attorneys, great mentors, and I had work that I could cut my teeth on because we were small enough. I had a couple of bench trials on my own. I did some jury trials with partners, some federal, a couple of appeals. And then after 16 years, when that firm dissolved, I went to Wildman Herald, which was a big firm. I was in that employment law department. And again, great experience, wonderful people to work with. We did a lot of class action litigation. There was wage hour and discrimination and harassment, just a lot of variety, a lot of good clients. So I enjoyed the experience. It was great to get the big firm experience and have the benefit of all of those mentors so that when I went on my own, I had that that experience, the background. It's super valuable, especially in those first three, four, five, six years to get a bench trial, a jury trial, hands-on actual legal experience. That's incredible to be getting. Right, right. I, I, you know, if I had started at a big firm, I probably would have done a lot of document review, maybe, maybe second chaired a trial, done a lot of assisting in depositions and things like that. And so it was great, you know, early on to be able to get that wonderful experience. How was the experience then when you transitioned to a much larger firm? It sounds about, it sounds like it was about the year 2000. 
Because at that point, you're pretty settled into your career. You've had a good amount of experience, but now you're kind of in a different workplace culture. So how is that transition like? You know, it was different people. Several of the attorneys from Halibankoff went over to that firm. We, we went over there together. So I was still working with some people, at least in a lot of the same clients, because these these attorneys brought over their clients. But then I was able to meet with, work with different different partners, different people in a variety of departments. By then, uh, I'm trying to remember how big they were, but we had a lot more attorneys and various types of industries that we, we represented. So it was great to be in a big firm and see what that was like compared to, you know, having been at a 32-person firm, which actually grew to 150 and then fell apart. And then to work at another firm and see different points of view, different ways that people do their courtroom practice, their depositions, negotiating different writing styles. So the more, the better. So you go from a 32-person firm to 150 to maybe more to then, I think, in February 21, you open up your own office. How is that transition then to go from 200 to you know, a couple? Right. So it, it was an interesting trans- transition. I, my, the firm that I was at, Wildman Herald, by then had been acquired, and which is now Lock Lord. And I decided that rather than work for a giant national firm, I was going to try and do it on my own. I had a lot of employer clients who had followed me from the first firm to the second firm. And so I, th- I thought I'm going to do this rather than try and look for a, a job at a smaller firm. I'm going to do it on my own. I talked to a few colleagues who had done that, moved from a big firm to go solo and asked them, what do I have to do? And essentially it was get business cards, get a website and mail practice insurance. <laughs> So I did those three things. And then I told my clients, I'm now the law office of Lori Goldstein. My rates are now a lot less than they were when you, when we were working together here. They all came with me. So it was a very smooth transition. I had already been working from home. So I've been working from home since 20, since 2000. So that was easy. And then I started, I was always interested in representing the, the little guy and decided to try that, cut my teeth on that, and really fell in love with that side of the law. So now I do both. So do you still have clients you work with that you created relationships with then in the 80s and the 90s? Yes, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I just took somebody to lunch who she she just retired after being the HR director for 25 years. And I was working with them for that long. A, a friend of mine who's an HR consultant, when we connected a couple of years ago in, in a networking group, the same one that Max and I are in, we realized we knew each other because I think 30 years ago, she was the HR director at a client that I had represented for, for years. We have a good relationship and my rates are more reasonable. So do you find that the, the long-term relationship on either side gives you a little bit more leeway, not to be abrasive or rude to the client, but be more direct with them and kind of give them harsh truths that they may not otherwise want to hear? Because um, I always yes. feel like when you have a client on either side, you, you will have attorneys say, listen, I see your position. You're probably not wrong. I, I can't say that to them. They, I don't have that kind of relationship with this client to, to be that frank with them. Right. No, no, I do. I am able to say, you know, you really have to be realistic and 
I've been doing this for 37 years. And so I've been down this road. I can tell you, this is the way it usually goes. This is the way the other side usually reacts. And so, you know, while there's nothing that's cookie cutter, I can give you the benefit of my experience and the history my clients have had to try and set you with reasonable expectations and and uh, be practical and be more open-minded. Again, be creative about solutions and not so strict and stubborn. When maybe this is where your commercial experience helps too. I'm assuming a lot of times your clients end up asking you questions that aren't necessarily just strictly about employment law. Yes, that happens a lot. I think all lawyers get those questions either from their clients or for, you know, people they meet at, at a restaurant. You know, oh, you're a lawyer. Can you do my will or can you help me with my divorce? So, yes, one of my favorite things is to connect people and to be a resource for clients and colleagues. So I connect my employee clients with, you know, family law attorneys, if they need tax attorneys, accountants, many with mental health therapists. And, and sometimes, you know, I don't litigate. So I connect them to litigators. I will refer them to Max and, uh, you know, and other litigators. A lot of times there are people that come to me looking for a contingency attorney or that understand contingency fees. And I don't do contingency fees. So I'll refer. I don't do public employment. So I refer. And NILA is a great resource. I'm always giving lists of NILA attorneys to my, to my clients or potential clients. So obviously when you start your firm, you have these relationships you've built with clients over you know decades, but they're more on the management side. How did you then build your employee side practice? It wasn't very difficult. It seems like every person has somebody that they know that is having work issues, that has a question about a severance agreement or a non-compete. I market a lot, so I present a lot to organizations, and sometimes somebody will come up to me afterwards or two years later and say, my wife saw you present, and now I need you, and I'm in a few networking groups, and just personal and professional. It's There's so many individuals that seem to have questions about employment. I don't know if you guys get this, this reaction sometimes, but people will say to me, I didn't even know there was such a thing as an employment lawyer. Even employers say that. And so, yes, the people, you know, you have to direct them to the right place. And I, there are clients that we have to turn away because either we're not the right one for them or we don't believe they have a case. And I won't represent somebody if I don't think that they have anything. I don't want to take somebody's money if I know that you're not getting anywhere with this. I like to give them the 15-minute initial consult and let them vent and sometimes talk them down. And sometimes that's all they need is for you to say, and I'm sure you do this, I listen, I understand this is a terrible situation. I'm, you shouldn't stay there or you're right that, you know, it's good that you're gone, but I can't get you anything. There's really nothing illegal. It's unfair and move forward. And they're grateful, at least that they've gotten, they've asked the advice and now they know and they can move forward. Yeah. I feel a lot of what we do is unlicensed therapy in a way. It's just allowing someone to vent and get stuff off their chest on both sides, companies, employees, et cetera they're going through a very rough time in their lives and they need someone to listen to them. 
Right, right. I often say that, you know, of an employment separation can be like a divorce. You spend a lot of time at work, you may spend a lot of years at a place, and it isn't always easy, especially if it was wasn't voluntary. So you have to realize it's not all about business and numbers. And, you know, these are people issues. And if my client, if the HR people or the managers, you know, can't be empathetic, then I try to in, inject some of that into it because it's the way to resolve things. And it's the right thing to do. Well, right. And like a divorce, it's not, you know, by the time the separation is happening or whatever issue has come to pass, it's not happening in a vacuum. There's so much bad blood in both directions and lack of trust that's that's led to that moment you know, getting people to sort of put their guns down and say, everybody take a deep breath, let's sit down and find a way to back out of this dangerous situation. It, it's not easy, right? Because like, you've got years or months or whatever of just hostility and back and forth that, you know, somebody told me stay away from criminal law and divorce. And it's sort of like, I don't know that this is any less hostile. Right. That's true. That's true. And, and, and sometimes that's, and I say to them, that's why you hire an attorney because for the most part, attorneys are professional and objective and we don't have the emotions and the history and we, and we know the law and we know how these things work. So stop, dealing with it as parties let us deal with this and you know we're not doing this because we're trying to make money from you we're doing this because we're trying to resolve it and you parties haven't been able to and i, I talk to my coworkers or see them more than i see anyone else so <laughs> i understand too from an employee situation if you're leaving a company after you've been there even if it's just a short period of time but definitely a longer period of time that's hard very hard and it's, you know, people that you, you want to keep relationships with. And we get the questions about, well, I just signed this confidentiality and non-disparagement. And so I can't talk to anybody anymore. Or what can I say about this? And so there's a lot, there's still a lot of unanswered questions or I guess, you know, stress after the whole thing is signed. But I think as time goes on, people, it, it, people find it easier and they're glad that it ended. I had a conversation with someone once who was very concerned that the confidentiality and non-solicitation agreement would prevent them from remaining friends with their former coworkers. Yeah, I mean, nobody can dictate or legislate that. That just is a little much. So yeah, a lot of times people think they understand something. And again, if they're signing contracts without getting advice, they, they learn the hard way. But Often they think they don't need an attorney. They've done these before. It, t it costs too much to get an attorney involved. And But, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies in these agreements, as, as you know. And you have to have the language tweaked the right way for it to be interpreted the right way. So especially with restrictions, termination clauses, you know, signing bonuses, relocation, things that are, may come back to haunt you later, make sure you get them right to begin with. It's preventive, like risk management. You've been doing this for a fair amount. You've had your own practice for 11 years, but you've been doing this generally for much longer than that. Are there any trends or is there anything that you feel is just done a 180? I realize it's a very broad question, but is there anything that's just like flat out, you know, when I started, it was black. Now it's white. The sky used to be blue. Now it's red relative to when you started doing employment law. I would say so. And I think I saw that this, that you plug this on LinkedIn, Max, but 
we just celebrated the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. And I was a youngish lawyer then. I remember when that came out and we were writing bulletins and doing seminars. And, and it was exciting because I, I really have a passion for people with disabilities. And I've seen it come a long way. There's still a long way to go, but there have been so many opportunities, so many different changes in mindset of employers and people, you know, across the world to have, you know, integration. And you see it in the schools as well. And I think it's wonderful. I think that, you know, our society should be open. Companies should be more open-minded to accommodations and flexibility. So I think that's maybe not done a 180, but it's come a long way as opposed to, and I say this in a lot of my discrimination and harassment trainings, this Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you know, that was basically focused on race. And we know where we're at now and we have so far to go. And the other 180, the little 180 that I've been talking about in sexual harassment training is that the Illinois Human Rights Act covers independent contractors. And I never in my 37 years did I think I would see that. Um, and maybe that happens in other states and other cities, but I never saw, you know, I never imagined that contractors would be covered. So that broadens all of our, our matters, our client markets, right? And have you seen more, any contractors come in with those claims? Well, I, I mean, nobody's really an employee anymore. I mean, like everybody's got independent contractor agreements now anyway. So in that's, I mean, now whether or not, you know, the law is going to agree with that designation is a separate issue, right? Yes, but, um, very much. You know, I, I haven't seen I it think, in that regard. I'm anticipating at some point you're going to have employees and making claims under the IHRA against contract or employers for their contractors. And so I think that part of it is going to be super interesting moving forward. What do you mean employers for their contractors? So like a contractor engages in a bad act and the employee then raises a claim against the employer for that reason. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those customer claims, I mean, customer claims have been, are theoretically actionable some of the time, depending on the facts, right? So I don't know if it's that dramatic. I mean, it's different in that you're in some way, shape or form, theoretically an agent to the employer, if it's a contractor versus a customer, but you never know. I mean, there's always been the risks of third-party liability, depending on what kind of preventative measures you take. Right. It probably also means a trend, and we've definitely seen this in other states, of you know, basically a much more narrow definition of what a contractor is, because everyone at this point is functionally an employee. And so th I think that's probably where we're going more so than anything else. Yes, I've dealt with that a lot lately. When there's, you know, there's a new federal rule, or the rules are are now changed again under the new administration, and it is a lot harder to show that somebody's a contractor. So a lot of these gig workers are going to be found w to be W twos, and there's a we know there's a lot of misclassification litigation going on. That's big business for sure. So you know, you're about eleven years since you started your firm in 2011. And, you know, you, you became an attorney in 1984. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice at those two points, both when you opened up an office and became an attorney, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. 
So becoming an attorney, what I would tell myself now is how important it is to network from the beginning. And I would say from high school on, it's important to network and, you know, talk to other people about their interests and their profession and what they do. And I, you know, when I was uh, a young lawyer and I had kids and I was out on the soccer field or, you know, PTA meetings, I, it didn't occur to me to say, you know, to ask, what do you do? What's your job? And, or to say that I'm an employment lawyer. And because I know that that's such a great way to build business and to let people know that you're out there, especially on the employee side, but also employers and business owners. So had I known, I would have started marketing very early on, networking very early on. When I started my own practice, I'm lucky that I have been very successful, even though I hadn't planned to go solo. It was kind of a last minute decision when my firm was getting acquired. And I didn't even think about talking to a business mentor about how to run a business. I figured I'm working from home. I've been doing the same stuff. You know, I'll figure out QuickBook and with my accountant and I'll do timesheets. But and even though I don't have employees, there's a lot that goes into having your own business. And so a couple of years after I was into it, I met with a SCORE mentor for a few sessions and learned so much about billing and time and time management and and then I probably should continue to work with a business mentor. So that's the other thing I would have done is to maybe have a little more planning. Again, I fell into it and I was very lucky, but I don't encourage people to do it without having some exploration, talking to a, a mentor. When I suspect the marketing is different when you own your own business versus when you're part of a bigger company. Right. And I see the big law firms and maybe it's changed now, but they didn't teach us young lawyers about networking or marketing. It was, you know, just keep churning the work basically. And we'll teach you when you're a partner, how to, how to market. And then our marketing department will help you with these things, but it's so organic. I mean, I know you can just be talking to your neighbor. I talk to people at the grocery store and I'm not out there with my card, like a, you know, a, an ambulance chaser, but it's nice to just be able to talk to people and, and get to know them and they get to know you. And through that someday they might need an employment lawyer. So well, well, and you said I don't remember if it was on this interview or the last one, but you know, there's not that many employment lawyers, and people don't really know what constitutes employment law. I mean, how many people call all three of us for what they call a wrongful discharge, and are shocked and appalled to learn that they're at will employees, even though I'm sure they sign an at will agreement. You know, you never know what's going to be illegal. You never know what's going to bring somebody to your door, and you're sort of always. You kind of always have to be a little right. Bit on. That's true. You have to think on your feet, which is, you know, one of the fun things to do as an attorney. And even if you're not, you know, in a courtroom or in an appellate court, you know, standing there, you still sometimes have to have some answers or at least recognize when you don't know the answer and say, I need to look into that. I will let you know. Do you, do you ever find that's a hard answer to give? I, I know I'm always afraid to give it when somebody asks me a point blank question that they think is, you know, a simple, what color is the sky today? And it's like, well, it's not that simple. I, I don't know. Or that's, you're not asking a simple question. Do you ever find that to be a challenging answer to give, or you've been doing this long enough where you're comfortable, 
you know, you're, you're comfortable and you're, you know, enough about yourself and, and, and your performance where you don't, you're not afraid to tell. I'm pretty confident. And I think you asked earlier, I I'm, I'm pretty direct. I mean, I, you know, I would rather be honest and give them the, the truth and, you know, not something that's unrealistic or high in the sky. And sometimes you do have to, you know, just to just tell it like it is and do it in a nice way. And again, always, acknowledge that they've had a bad situation or they're going through a bad situation and there are things that can be done to to resolve it but it may not be through a legal process yeah i feel it's all about managing expectations and not misleading them to think you can get them something you just aren't remotely close to getting them right and i'm sure there are attorneys who do that for employers and employees and you know, I, I just wouldn't feel ethically right in doing that. And again, if somebody asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to, I would not want to give them an answer and, you know, second guess myself later. I would rather say, I think it's this, but I'm not sure. And I will get back to you than to just blatantly say, oh, yeah, you know, yes, they discriminated against you. You know, you win. It's not always that easy. I wish it was that easy, but yeah, it's almost always going to be a lot of gray, a lot of variables. And even when you think you're right, you don't get to make that decision. Correct. Correct. You, you kind of understand why in law school, they don't just give you the answer right off the bat and they force you to kind of think through the different permutations of problems, because even when it's cut and dry, it's not. Right. That's why we have law, laws and lawyers. That's what I tell people, because if it was that easy, you know, you wouldn't need us. Well, and with COVID in particular, right? Like that's been that's been the hardest part because there just aren't. This is uncharted. The regulations sometimes change by the day. The state, city, municipal, whatever re, you know, federal regulatory guidance. You just don't know where you're going to end up on this stuff. And so it's like, well, it could be this until it's not, and then it changes. Right. Right. Exactly. How has COVID kind of impacted? running your own business? Well, running my own business, it hasn't affected my remote work from home. And I'm, obviously I'm not, I hadn't been meeting with clients. It's, it's now, you know, been pretty much all remote, all by phone or computer. Now it's going back a little bit to meetings. In terms of impacting the content of my business, it's just been tremendous. I've been helping employers and workers navigate this since early March of 2020. We have, you know, continuing changes in the disease numbers, the risks, the laws, all the guidelines, and it's keeping the lawyers very busy. And there are questions and interesting situations that arise on both sides. And you know, at least weekly, I'll have a question or a situation that had never come up. And I would never have thought somebody would, you know, ask me that or want to do that or say something like that. It's like, this employer wants to do what? So they all have interesting suggestions. And, you know, you kind of have to talk down the employer sometimes if I understand that some of them are adamant about getting people back to work and getting everything back to normal. But we're not in the normal yet. And there's a lot of reasonable fears and concerns. So it's still, uh, it's, it's a moving target. Has it changed how you do your marketing? Are you doing more, maybe you're already doing this, but remote marketing or meetings, this, you know, networking, all that type of stuff? 
The networking meetings had, have, had all been remote until recently, which really was a great time saver. I mean, I, I miss being with people, but it's a lot easier to just, you know, walk down to your <laughs> off your home office at 7.15 and start meeting with people and, and be able to wear jeans, you know, than to be half an hour away and drive and try and wake up early. That's that's been different. And then in terms of pre- presentations, so I I do sexual harassment training, and I'm always presenting, doing webinars to various organizations, nonprofits, and I've been really busy with those. Many relating to COVID, starting a year ago, April. So those have been great. I've been doing those remotely, mostly through Zoom. The harassment trainings we're having, you know, 25 people on and doing interactive discussions, and it's working well. And again, it's it's been a lot more efficient because it's easy to be there without traveling, without the expense and, you know, having to uh, pay for a room and things like that. So it's been, uh, it's been a lot more efficient. As to that training, I'm curious because the Workplace Transparency Act, we all heralded, I, I think most of us were pretty excited about it coming out, what it did to severance agreements that people were, employers finally were going to have no choice, but to take sexual harassment training, at least on paper, seriously. What has your experience been, because you are somebody uniquely situated to, to answer this, what has your experience been generally with employers doing this? Do people seem receptive? Do people care? Do people seem like they're actually learning from the process? Like if you had men come up to you, well, nobody can come up to anybody right now, but you know what I mean? Like go up to you metaphorically and say, gosh, I never realized that you know commenting in this way or that way really impacts people in my workplace or it's, you know, just people kind of checking the box and going about it? Uh, you know, it depends on the group and, you know, and whether it's, uh, you know, I've done some for some trade associations, so they don't, these are not people that work together. And a lot of those, since they don't know each other well, I think they may be more reluctant to ask questions or describe situations, although some of them do. Some of them will ask and they will be honest about their surprise that something that I said could actually be illegal. And with employers, again, it depends on the group because it's all the group dynamics. So I did one a couple of weeks ago. I think there were nine people. It's a great company. And I did this for them last year. And they're very conscious about, you know, safety and health and and a good culture. I know the owners very well. And so, and these people were very comfortable talking to each other. And there were a lot of very interesting conversations. People brought things up that, you know, out of the past that somebody said, I didn't realize you felt that way. And there was apologies going on throughout this. And that was pretty dramatic. There are others though, that, you know, they're just sitting through it because they need the CE or the credit or, you know, they're required by their employer. And I'm hoping that they're getting something out of it, but you know, it's hard to tell when they don't participate. You know, they're not answer, asking questions or having any discussion. I do a pop quiz at the end and you know, we do a poll. And so through that, there's sometimes some questions because we get a lot of variety of answers and that requires a discussion. You know, how come you know, you guys were half and half about whether or not this constitutes harassment. And so here's why it does or why it doesn't. Do you have a sense of, are these trainings more effective in person versus being virtual? 
I think they're more effective in person. Definitely. I think that people are, you know, it's harder to hide behind your screen and, or be distracted and be doing other work. I mean, you really have to pay attention and there's body language and there's eye contact. And, you know, if these are people you're working with, you really should be in an interactive conversation with them. And I think best to be in the same room, but for now, you know, I'm not promoting indoor, you know, until unless and until it's done safely. So that will remain to be seen. But and the other thing is, you know, companies shouldn't stop doing sexual harassment training just because we're remote or the office is closed. And and as part of my training, I tell people that when COVID first started, I thought, what do we need to do this training for? Who's going to do sexually harass anybody? We're all remote. And I have two slides on remote harassment because it can happen, you know, when you're on a one-on-one with the boss, it can happen when somebody's IMing or texting you. I mean, it doesn't have to be physically in the office. So Jeffrey Tubin, Jeffrey Tubin can attest to that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sometimes it happens more often <laughs> remotely because, you know, it, again, it's easier to hide. People think the rules don't apply so much to remote work and things are casual and so well, I it, think internal messaging apps are just ripe for stuff like that. It makes it so much easier for folks to do stuff they shouldn't be doing. Right, right. I mean, all these devices now, you know, in the old days, you didn't have, you know, you were either picking up a phone, pretty much picking up a phone or doing it in person. And now there's so many ways, just so many ways. So, Lori, anything else you'd like to plug? Um, well, so I would plug the sexual harassment training because you have to get it done once per year. So if you haven't done it yet this year, you've got until December 31st. And I'd be happy to talk to people about that. And also discrimination and harassment training generally. I think it's important to be discussing all types of protected categories. There are, you know, the Me Too is not the only movement here. We have other protected categories that are so important. And I think now we have to focus on race, national origin, religion, some of the issues that have come up because of COVID relating to discrimination and harassment. So disability and age, that's the time. So I think people should start looking at training and also take a look at your employment policies, your employee handbooks, laws usually change on the first of the year, on the first of the year. So you should have your attorney take a look and make sure that you are current and consistent with the laws that apply to your company. All right, Lori, one last question for you. Remind us one last time how people can find you if they want to get a hold of you. Okay. My website is Lori Goldstein Law. My email is Lori L O R I dot A dot Goldstein, G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N at gmail.com. And my phone number 847-624-6640. Awesome. Thank you for coming on again. Thank you. Thank you so much to everybody at home for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.